And I pray that this holiday season, if you will, has been great for you, celebrating with friends and family, doing a lot of eating and playing games, certainly the Lord's kindness and blessings to allow us to experience these things. Many uh, in this season have been, you know, using it as a time of deep reflection about who He is, what He's done, that now that 2022 is in the rearview mirror, 2023 is upon us, that you have even more confidence today than maybe you did this time last year. That you have even more trust. You have an increased faith, increased intimacy with Christ because another year has gone by and another year of His unchangeable grace, His faithfulness to you. Another year and that He's provided for you in, in many different ways that you had not known. How He has sustained you. How He has guided you in dear church. He is with you. He's worthy to be worshipped and praised and we can trust Him. New year, same God. New year, same God and much will change this year, but He won't. That's why you can have a solid foundation for whatever it is that God will sovereignly bring into your life this year. You know, as we all know, what's prominent during this time of year are resolutions. We all know what they are, too, because they never change either. Exercise more, lose weight, save money, learn a new language, maybe find a new job, etc. This is also the time of year when you start and hopefully, and finally meet that goal of reading the Bible in a year. You know, whatever it is, or whatever it is you're wanting to resolve for this year, it seems that psychologically even, turning the calendar to the new month, to the new year, it almost like provides some sort of, of, uh, of new motivation. Right? Something's different, whereas this motivation had not existed at any point during the entire year, but it does today. We somehow convince ourselves that this will be the year. No surprise, though, that less than 20% of resolutions are actually followed through on, meaning 80% fail, and much of that 80% actually fail within the month of January. And I still vividly remember, while in college, working for Sears, for those of you who are like, what is Sears? That's where your grandparents bought all their appliances at one point. I worked in the sporting goods department, and like much like any college kid working in sporting goods, they mostly worked off commission. And the big ticket items, treadmills. Okay. Treadmills. So I loved working in December because we would sell a lot of treadmills. And most, if not all, when I spoke to them, why are you buying a treadmill? All of them would say, it's my New Year's resolution. Want to get healthy. Want to lose weight. However... When January came, guess what items had the highest rate of return? Treadmills. And so there went all the commissions that I already spent the previous month now being deducted from my future paychecks. And if I could summarize all the various publications and scholarly articles and recognized experts as to why resolutions fail, there's universal agreement that they fail because of these two things. One, they're both unrealistic 
And second, they lack the proper foundation. This morning, we will be in Psalm 100. So please turn there. The title of this sermon is God Glorifying Resolutions. God Glorifying Resolutions. And my encouragement to you as we start this new year is simply this, that you resolve to live a life of gratitude by glorifying and worshiping God in the ways that He has prescribed. That you resolve to live a life of gratitude by glorifying and worshiping God in the ways that He has prescribed. Please pray with me. Lord, we need Your help. In and of ourselves, there's nothing we can do. You, you tell us as much. Apart from Christ, there's nothing you can do. And so we need you. We need you now more than ever. Lord, we ask for your help to give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, you know where all of us are this morning. But you know, God, what all of us need. And so I pray, God, that as a result of your word being preached and going forth that it may stir our hearts to greater affection for Christ. We pray these things in His name. Amen. Psalm 100 gives believers seven resolutions. And the difference with God's resolutions for your life is that, again, as I said, you can't do it on your own. You can try and do it on your own and then you're going to fail and fail quickly. And these resolutions can only be done by those who have placed their faith in Christ because they have the Spirit of God living inside of them. Then and only then, through the work of the Spirit and God working in you, can these resolutions even manifest in ways that glorify God and give you satisfaction and fulfillment. And so follow along with me as I read Psalm 100. Very short, it's only five verses but as we will see this morning, packed with much truth. Starting in verse 1, Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before Him with joyful singing. Know that the Lord Himself is God. It is He who has made us, and not we ourselves. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving in His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him. Bless His name. For the Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting. His faithfulness to all generations. And we will, we will have two main points that will guide our time this morning. First, the reasons. And second, the resolutions. When we speak of the reasons, we're speaking of the very foundation the very foundation for the God-glorifying resolutions. These are the reasons the Lord gives us so that we know why we're even doing what we're doing. It's what motivates our actions. I mean, don't you like to know why you're doing what you're doing? Though it's not directly credited to him as having written this psalm, there is consensus that David is most likely the writer of this psalm. So God, through David, gives us a twofold reason. Twofold foundation. 
for why we will do what we will be doing. The reasons are who He is and what He has done. Who He is and what He has done. Verse 5, who He is, says there, for the Lord is good. Your church, remember that the Lord is good. You've heard this phrase, God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. This isn't some cheeky phrase or pithy statement or something you wear on your wrist because it's trendy. No, Jesus said in Luke 18, no one is good except God alone. 1 John 1, 5, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. To say that God is good means that God always acts in accordance to what is right, what is true, and what is good. The problem, though, is we love darkness rather than light. We run away from the light. Our hearts are darkened and we love our sin and we love our pride and righteousness and holiness have no fellowship with darkness and sin. We call evil good and good evil. Isn't that so true? Just turn on the news or listen to the radio or listen to basically any syndicated podcast and this is exactly what is happening. But what God's Word says, Psalm 119.68, is He is good and does good. He does nothing but good. That's all He does. It's in His nature to be good. You know, there are times where I drop off my daughters to school, and at least for the elementary grades, they do a morning lineup. It's actually kind of cool. They All the classes line up, and the principal's up there making announcements and, you know, getting the kids excited before school, and they do the pledge, and... And often when parents drop off their kids, I commonly hear them reminding their children, hey, be good today. Be good. Or do good today. You know, the difference between us and God is God needs no reminding to be good. He doesn't have to try and be good. He just is. God's goodness manifested in the Good Shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. God's goodness manifested in all that he has created. God looked at all that he has created and called it good. The very word God is a shortened form of good. Well, some of you here have yet to experience this good. Have yet to come to faith in Christ. And dear friend, I plead with you that every good thing, every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights. Christ has come, and this is Christmas. Emmanuel, He is with us. He lived the life you could not live. He he, he died the death you deserve to die. Dear friend, this is the Gospel, the good news. Oh, come, come this morning. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And you know, life may not actually get easier when you come and taste of the Lord and His goodness. Life may actually not get easier, but life will certainly get better. Life will still be good because you have Christ. And when you have Christ, you have hope. And when you have Christ, you have purpose. And when you have Christ, you have direction. And when you have Christ, you have a firm foundation for whatever it is this fallen world will bring. So He is good. And next in 
verse 5, He is loving. It says there, His loving kindness is everlasting. God is many things, but at the core of who He is, is love. And His love, in other words, His mercy, is everlasting. You know, isn't that great? The word for love means covenant love. You know, God has bound Himself to you in a covenant, in a contract that will never be revoked or abandoned. This love, this is what is called hesed love, steadfast love, a love that is resolute, a love that will never let you go, a love that doesn't fail. This is the type of love that no matter what you do, the love remains. Never-ending. You know, it's hard for us to fathom this kind of committed, covenant love because so much of our culture today wants nothing to do with commitment. Allergic, even, to the idea of commitment. You know, through the years, I've dealt with many employment legal matters. And 100% of the time that I've been involved in these tussles, if you will, in a, in a contract is involved that has very specific terms or agreements, if you will. If, if the other party, if they don't like those terms or agreements, then guess what? We start arguing. We start negotiating. And eventually the terms and agreements start changing. So whatever it was we were committed to before, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. You know, remember when cell phone contracts were a thing? <laughs> you know why they're no longer a thing? Because all you have to do is call, complain enough, and then you get out of your contract. So something as small as a mobile contract to something as large as God's ultimate expression and form of a commitment. This side of heaven, marriage, has been casualized has been minimized for the sake of convenience, for the sake of tax purposes. Once it serves its purpose, just dissolve a marriage. You can just log on to CaliforniaOnlineDivorce.com and for a limited time offer of $139 and 30 minutes of your time, you can make that happen. This is what happens when commitment is left to you. So aren't you glad that God has committed His love to you? Because His love overflows. And His love overflowed so much so that He sent His Son that whosoever would believe in Him would have life eternal. His commitment is steeped in blood. This is why when He says, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you, you can trust that. Because His love is everlasting and He has set His affection on you. You know, Christ isn't a fair-weather friend. You know, does knowing this cause gratitude within you? And I pray that it does. And that's the point of this psalm. It's the only one in the entire 150 of the Psalter titled a psalm of thanksgiving. Because David knows that once you begin to reflect and once you begin to remember who God is, it's going to cause something within you. 
It's going to cause you to live in an obedient life. It's going to cause you to live in a transformed life. It's going to cause you to live in a life set apart. We are more like God when we love as God loves. 1 John 4, 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. John chapter 13. This is how the world the world will know that we are His. By our love for one another. He is good. He is loving. And verse 5 concludes, He is faithful. It says there, in His faithfulness to all generations. You know, maybe the last couple of years, as change has been rapid and often overwhelming, the character of God that became most prominent to you is the absolute fact that He is faithful. Maybe you lean a particular way politically, and like many, look to a particular political party to establish some sort of morality. And when that party equally votes, equally embraces, and celebrates the degradation of marriage and gender, it's as if the Lord continues to remind us. Never put any eternal, righteous, or holy trust in anything of this world. He is the I Am. Christ is the standard manifested through His Word. What He says will happen. Who He says He is, that's who He is. And when He promises to provide for all your needs, Philippians 4.19, you need not worry. Because He will. You are created in His image. You are more important than birds. When He says He will be with you, He will be with you. When He says He will comfort you, Matthew 5.4, rest assured, you will be comforted when you are weak and He promises to strengthen you, He will. And the way He does may not even be to remove whatever affliction it is in your life. Whatever affliction it is that He either directly has caused for your good, because He's always good, or whatever hardship that He has allowed to enter into your life, should those afflictions or should those hardships remain, His promise still remains. And you may ask, how could that be? It's because His grace will be sufficient. You know, just reflect back. Whether far back or just this past year, 2022. And think. Maybe marinate a little bit on all that has happened. Can you conclude that God was unfaithful to you? Can you? You know, maybe some of you here this morning can. You can say, yes. Yes, He has. He's been unfaithful to me. And here's the list right here of all the ways that He has been unfaithful to me. You know, if that's you, then dear friend, I would simply encourage you with this. You know, I may not even know what your grievances are towards God. But I can answer for you that He has never been unfaithful to you. And the proof of that is the fact that you are sitting here hearing His Word preached. And while angry or disappointed with God, He continues to show you mercy. That's David's thrust. He's like, don't look at yourself. 
Look to Him. And when you look at Him, what you will see is He is the same yesterday, He is the same today, and He will be the same forever. Hebrews 13.8 He was faithful to the previous generation. He is faithful to our current generation. And He will be faithful to our children's generation. And He will be faithful to every subsequent generation after that. Until He returns. You know, Spurgeon, commenting on this, stated this, quote, God is not mere justice, stern and cold. He has the bowels of compassion and wills not the sinner's death. Towards his own people, mercy is still conspicuously displayed. It has been theirs from all eternity and shall be theirs world without end, unquote. That's awesome, isn't it? Has God been good to you in 2022? Of course He has. Then here's what that means. That He will be good to you in 2023. Has God been loving and merciful to you in 2022? Of course He has. Then that means He will be loving and merciful to you in 2023. Has God been faithful in 2022? Of course He has. Then that means He will be faithful to you in 2023. See, this is who God is. And the next reason, the next motivation for us to reflect upon is what He has done. Back to Psalm 100, verse 3, says there, It is He who has made us, and not we ourselves, we are His people and the sheep of His pasture. It is He who made us. He's the Creator. Genesis 1, we see God creating. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 says this, For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Creation is God's work, not ours. And you know, we as people love to claim and we love to take account for the things that we have created, don't we? Painted something, sign it. Marketing something, put your logo on it. Want some recognition, put your name on it. Writing a research paper and you reference someone else's work, make sure you cite it. Doing this, what it does, it alerts people who may be admiring the work or or generally curious on who did something, it lets them know who did it. Gives credit to where credit is due. And here we are reminded, God created you. And in case that wasn't clear enough, David further says, and not we ourselves. This is exactly the, the reason why people today are so allergic to this. Because the darkened mind and the simple heart, it doesn't want to hear this. You know, this is why evolution, even though it has been scientifically disqualified, even though it has been scientifically disqualified as the reason for creation, this is the reason why it is just as appealing today as it was years ago. Because Romans 1 tells us that sinful man willingly, not forced to or coerced to, willingly suppresses 
the truth. This truth that could set men free. Willingly suppresses it. And that's the sad reality. Let's remove God from the picture. So that I could be in charge. I can be the creator. I can curate my own universe. I'm the center of my own universe. And it's a universe where I don't need God. Because if I can create my own world, then I don't need God. Then I certainly don't need to be thankful to Him. You know who I should be thanking? Me. Thanking me. You know, nothing summed this up more than a speech given on November 19, 2018, when entertainer Snoop Dogg, or depending on where you're from, Snoop Dogg, he received the star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. And in his acceptance speech, he briefly did the, the standard act. You know, he started thanking others and a few important people in his life. And, but he spent the remaining time thanking himself. Quote, I want to thank me for believing in me. I want to thank me for doing all this work. I want to thank me for having no days off. I want to thank me for never quitting. I want to thank me for always being a giver and trying to give more than I receive. I want to thank me for trying to do more right than wrong. I want to thank me for being me at all times. Unquote. Then after that, he thanks God. See, this is backwards. Knowing God is knowing yourself. And if we don't know God, then you can't know your true self. And if you don't know God, then you will not think you need God. If you don't believe you need Jesus, then you're not going to come to Him. All you need is you. Because only in the presence of the Creator, only in the presence of holiness, only in the presence of righteousness, can you ever see just how needy you are. So He's our Creator. And as the verse continues in Psalm 100, verse 3, we are reminded that He is also our Redeemer. In other words, He's our Creator and He is our Recreator. That's what the words His people and the sheep of His pasture ultimately refer to. This is a timely reminder even for what we will be doing at the end of this service where we can partake of His table. A meal that the Lord has set aside for His people to remember what He has done in saving a people for Himself. Dear Christian, have you been redeemed? Has He saved you? And does knowing that overflow with gladness? A gratitude within you, knowing that if not for Christ, If not for Christ, I would be lost. I would have no hope. I would be looking forward to an eternity of nothing. Oh, and He reached down, plucked you out of the depths of your own sin. You know, it's difficult at this point to not think of Psalm 23, where David says, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His namesake. Or dear Christian, He's 
our shepherd. You are the sheep of this pasture. Or maybe we consider John chapter 10, where Christ says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Christ further says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. And this should be a comfort to us, that we are His. Because if He created us, and if He redeemed us, then surely He will sustain us. As His sheep, He will feed us. He will protect us. He will give us shelter. Wouldn't He also discipline us for our own good? You know, as our shepherd, we can trust Him and Him alone. He will lead us and wherever it is that He leads us, we can trust that it is for our good. And it will give Him glory. Maybe the path He will lead you on this year will be one of unusual prosperity. If so, be thankful to Him because He is generous. And be grateful to Him who is the giver of all things. And maybe the path He will lead you on This year is one that will be full of trials, full of sorrow. And if that is the case, that too we must thank Him for, knowing that He is wise and gracious, even in allowing such hard times. Turn to Philippians chapter 4. well-known passage. Often taken out of context, though. And I'll get to that. Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 11. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I am in. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. You know, the context of this verse is not sports, where we often see that verse. Maybe you see that verse on on someone's boxing trunks as they're punching somebody. (laughs) I can do all things, you know, through Christ who strengthens me. That's not even the context of the verse. No, the context of the verse is about gratitude. It's about humility. It's about being thankful amidst your circumstances. Paul was in prison when he wrote this. And so, dear Christian, listen to me. If you are His, regardless of what will happen this year, you are His. Troubles will come, but you are still His. Sickness will come, And you may even get the next iteration of COVID, which is, I looked it up, XBB.1.5. Okay, that's the next iteration. You may get that. You're still his, though. You may lose your job this year. You're still his. We are his, and we will always be his. He will never leave us nor forsake us. God said to Moses, I am with you. Likewise, Jesus said, I am with you always. So may we be so convinced that along with Apostle Paul, we can say this, that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God 
which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. These are the reasons. These are the whys. Who He is. What He has done. And if you don't know these, then the resolutions that you will be challenged with here in the next few minutes will be meaningless. Done out of your own strength and surely you're going to fail. But dear Christian, if you know these truths and you know you need God to help you live these out, and it will be for your good and for His glory, living life in an obedient way in the ways that He has prescribed, it's, it, it will serve you well. It will allow for you to be in His presence and in His presence is fullness of joy. This psalm gives us seven imperatives. In other words, seven commands to follow and we will go through these rather quickly some of them you would maybe feel are rather basic elementary but as was prayed this morning may we get really good at the basics these are our god glorifying resolutions number one back to verse one of psalm 100 david commands us to shout shout joyfully to the lord the context here is important Because what David has in mind is that this action, along with the other ones we're going to talk about, are done within the context of corporate worship, within the context of the local church. The original word here, shout, is indicative of loyal subjects when they see their king. Loyal subjects, when they see their king, they shout. Why? Because they're happy. They're happy at the sight of him. Right? They're, they're happily worshiping a happy God. They have a cheerful spirit. There's a joy within them, a gratitude. You know, we can get excited. We can get excited over the most trivial things. You know, just like watching any sporting event, when the team we're cheering for does something, scores or wins, there's an eruption. There's an eruption. There's joy. There's happiness. There's gladness. There are smiles. It feels even euphoric. Like nothing else in the world at that very moment matters. You know, different though than how maybe some fans react when there's chaos or loss of control and when fans shout and cheer, they're only cheering for what the athlete did. They're not cheering for who they are. It's, yes, touchdown, not, yes, he's such a nice person. You see how different it is with God? We shout yes for what He has done and equally for who He is. You know, this shout towards the Lord is one of gladness, as David points out. And we know God to be a God of order as well. Our God is an orderly God, and that means we don't just go crazy and screaming and distracting others. However, this is vocal. And when you have a new song in your heart, it overflows into vocal praise because he's worthy he's worthy of that praise and he is worthy to be shouted about and it's so awesome here that all the earth all the earth are invited to join in on it the lord desires that all be saved and christ commands us to make disciples of all the nations because christ will have a people for himself shouting praises to him so in 2023 shout Verse 2 gives us our second resolution. We are to serve. It says there, serve the Lord with gladness. This is a natural response. 
to who He is and what He's done. All throughout Scripture, the people of God have been moved to action. Moved to action. Throughout all of Scripture, the people of God, the true people of God, have never been stagnant. Never. They've always been moved to action. But not action because they maybe girded up their own loins to do something or they pulled themselves up by their own bootstraps. No, because it doesn't start with us. It starts with God. And when Isaiah was in the presence of the glory and the holiness and the righteousness of God, the natural response to being struck by that is, Here I am. Send me. I need to do something. Because you're so glorious. And, and when Peter was face to face with Christ, and Christ said, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, I love you. And Christ said, then feed my sheep. There's action for you. There's something for you to do. And other translations translate serve with worship. And this is how closely related they are. Your service is a form of worship to the Lord. So do you view it that way? Or is service to the Lord viewed more like a job you can't stand? This isn't at all minimizing the difficulties of ministries and the difficulties of serving. But I think we have it twisted. You know, God doesn't need us. He's fully content within Himself. So the fact that we get to serve is a privilege. You know, let's flush this idea out of service a little bit more and and worship. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 states this. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. There's a word in this verse regarding serving that the Lord... There's a word in this verse that I think we often overlook regarding serving the Lord. And that word is sacrifice. Sacrifice. You know, serving by nature is sacrifice. You know, serving by nature is not convenient. You know, what's sad though is when we take our eyes off of Christ and start looking at ourselves, then our service becomes about us. It becomes about whether or not I have time. You know, serving the Lord and as our spiritual form of worship becomes about, I will serve, but only when it is convenient for me. It becomes, as one person, one person once said to me, I want to take a break from serving because I want people to serve me. It becomes about serving only in the ways that we like or prefer, irregardless of what the actual needs are. And I remember at the very beginning of this church when it was planted, I was excited to serve. Excited to serve. I didn't really know what a church plant was. I was just excited to be a part of one. Excited to serve but only in the ways I had already been serving at my previous church. I was excited to serve, but only in these ways, because that's what I like to do. And I remember early on, our pastor encouraged me 
I'm glad for your desire to serve in those areas. But what about these areas where there are actually needs? The needs are in these areas, not in that area. So serve here. And Lord willing, when there's needs in that area, then serve there. And so resolve, dear church, to serve the Lord. And some have come up to me telling me the ways that they do serve, whether it's to volunteer their time at a para-ministry or some external organization, and there are plenty out there. And plenty that are good. However, the thrust here is to serve the people of God. Even more specifically, to serve the people of this church. And so evaluate your motivations for service. Are you serving in ways because it fits your schedule? Or are you serving the Lord because of who He is and what He has done? You don't know where, if you don't know where to serve, come talk to me. Plenty of areas. And my goal certainly is not to guilt you in some sort of task. No, my goal is to spur you on into greater Christ-likeness. And when you serve the Lord and His people, you are worshiping Him. And when you are fixed, Upon pleasing Him, you will look a lot less at your skills. Rather, what God is drawing out within you is, are you simply willing? Are you willing? Matthew chapter 25, verses 35 to 40, a quick summary there. Christ was talking about being served and how He he needed food and shelter. and, And He said, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it for one of the least of these brothers or sisters of mine, you did it. So serve one another. And by doing so, you'll be serving the King. Third resolution, come. Come before Him with joyful singing. Again, context here is formal worship. And to David's audience, this is a command to come to the temple and worship God. Dear saints, may you resolve in 2023 to come and worship with the people of God. In other words... Be where the local church gathers to bear one another's burdens, to pray for one another, to fellowship, to sit under the teaching and preaching of God's Word. The thrust of not only this text, but of all other texts related to formal worship of God and the gathering of His people, like what we find in Hebrews 10, is to not forsake it. Not forsake assembling together, as is the habit of some. And may this not be your habit to forsake assembling together. You know, there's something different that happens when God's people are together. Yes, you can sing on your own. And yes, you need to have your own devotional times because those are vital, but so is coming together. Yes, you can do all this, but remember, a wedding is not private. A wedding is made to be public for all to see and for all to experience in the gathered church. This is Christ's manifestation of his marriage his commitment to the people that the father has given him and there is a joy that comes that is very unique outside of anything else that we do so when we are gathered be here and yes that goes for evening service as well you know this isn't optional this is for our own good for our own growth for your protection for the glory of God. The fourth resolution. Know, verse 3, know that the Lord Himself 
is God. Our worship is to be intelligent. We must know who it is that we worship. We are to know once again who He is and what He has done. Seems like a theme, doesn't it? Recurring theme in this psalm. This word know also it connotes an intimate knowledge. Not a superficial educational type of knowledge where you can memory dump it. Intimate knowledge that goes deep. Deep into your heart. Deep into your soul. Because you've experienced it. So resolve to know Him more this year. Know Him more by consistently reading His Word. Studying it. Feasting on it. Communing with Him. Be discipled this year. Be discipled this year where someone can come alongside you and help you study the Word of God and also come alongside you in the things of this life. Help you walk through these things. He Himself is God. He is God. There is no other. There is no one else worth knowing than Him. You know, we are all by nature knowledge seekers. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11 tells us that God has set eternity in our hearts. So there is this thirst for more. There's a natural thirst for knowledge. It just depends what you are seeking to quench that thirst. Because if it's the things of this world, those are broken cisterns. Those hold no water. You know, it's like, I mean, probably not relatable right now because it is cold and rainy and windy and storming, but... Imagine, you know, hot, right in the middle of summer Sacramento. It's like you're, you're already thirsty, dehydrated, and it's a hot day, and it's like drinking soda. You know, you think you're quenching your thirst, but in reality, all you're doing is getting more and more dehydrated. John chapter 17, verse 3 says this, This is eternal life that they may know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This Christ. This Christ, Philippians 3, may we count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whom, Paul says, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish. But rubbish. So that I may gain Christ. Resolve, dear church, to know Him this year at a level you'd never before. Resolve to, 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 to have this intimate, experiential knowledge of Christ that you've never had before. Long for that this year. The fifth, sixth, and seventh resolutions are all connected. So we'll discuss them together. Verse 4 says, Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him. Bless His name. Enter, give thanks, and praise. Enter, give thanks, and praise. This is an amazing verse. And this is a prophetic verse. Remember the context again. Formal worship with the people of God in the temple. So David is inviting you, 
Enter His gates so that you may give thanks to the one whom thanks is due and that you may offer praise to the one who is worthy of it. You know what makes this amazing is again, think of the audience. Think of the audience that David is writing to and what he's asking them to do. He's asking them to enter his gates and enter his courts. You know, if you remember the temple, it had many courts. And depending on who you were, you can only go so far. There was the court of the Gentiles and the court of the women and the court of Israel and then there were the court of the priests. And if you were a foreigner, non-Jew, if you will, the outside court was it for you. That was it. And this was so serious that there were actually signs. Okay? There were signs on the outside of each of the walls that were dividing each of the courts. And so that if you entered a court that you weren't supposed to enter, that was punishable by death. This was serious. So when you enter his gates, Christ invites you all the way in. All the way in. Through Christ, you have access. You know, not just to the outer court or the court of the Gentiles. No, because Christ, as Hebrews 13, 12 says, through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Because of Christ's sacrifice, you don't you no longer need to fear coming in. You can enter, and you can enter all the way, because the veil of the temple has been torn in two from top to bottom. And that's significant because no one else could have torn the veil that way. If it was torn from bottom to top, then maybe we can give ourselves some credit. But because it tore from top to bottom, no one could have reached that high. You know the veil measured thirty feet high. And historical accounts measured the thickness of the veil at four inches. This was a thick garment. And this was built not only to, to, to hide what was behind it, which was the Holy of Holies, but it was a visible reminder of separation. A visible reminder that you can only go so far and you can't go any further without any intervention. And so that was meant to symbolize you're separated from Him. And so only Christ, who is high and lifted up, oh, He tore this veil so that you can come in. David prophetically saying, enter His gates and His courts. And because of Christ's sacrifice of Himself, you can now, Hebrews 4, 16, draw near with confidence. You no longer need to fear. There's no more signs outside the walls. There is no more walls. You can draw near with confidence so that you may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So have you received mercy? If you have, then there's only one appropriate response. Giving thanks. You know, in case you may forget, David actually repeats that twice in this verse. Because he doesn't want you to forget that gratitude is the only response. You know, are you a tax collector? unwilling to even lift up your eyes because of your sin, beating your breast, saying, God, be merciful to me. A sinner. And our gracious God, Ephesians 2, who is rich in mercy. 
because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. This is why when you enter His gates and His courts, thanksgiving and praise is what comes up. Because you can't come in on your own. You know, there's no amount of money or influence that can get you in. Because the cost to you is free. It's free. Because if you've placed your faith upon Him, He has paid your ransom. Oh, you can come in. And so as we celebrate a new year upon us, dear church, may you resolve to shout, to serve, to come, to know, to enter, to give thanks, and to give Him praise and the reasons and the motivations that will allow for you to not only do this, but to sustain it are the truths of who He is and what He has done. So before I close in prayer, I want to invite up the band along with the men who will pass out the elements. As I mentioned earlier, a couple times a year, we hold communion, Lord's table, during the morning service. This morning is one of those days. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 Verse 14 says, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. So is this your reality this morning? Christ's love compelled him to go to the cross, so Christ wanted to go. Christ willingly sacrifice himself so that you may have a seat at his table. You know, this invitation, however, is followed by warnings. A warning to Christians to not approach the table sinfully. And a warning to those who are not Christians to be observers only. Not participants. You know, there are some who should not eat and drink with us this morning. You know, one of the key claims we make in this meal is that we belong to Christ. That our salvation depends on Him. And that He's our only hope. So that's what this meal symbolizes. And so it would be disingenuous, if not mockery, to eat and drink of the symbols if there's no reality behind them. So those of you who know you're not a Christian or who are unsure of your conversion or you are... Uh, children incapable of understanding the significance of this ordinance. Or, maybe you're a Christian and you are walking in open rebellion against God. Please don't take the bread and the cup when they're passed. And there's no judgment. This is so as to not eat and drink judgment on yourself. The Bible clearly teaches that before eating and drinking, the believer must properly examine. And so some business to do with God, sin needing to be repented of, and if you confess your sin, He is faithful and just to forgive you. So this meal becomes a celebration, doesn't it? So we'll go ahead and sing. And the men can go ahead and pass out the bread.